So that's Genesis 38, and we'll be reading the whole chapter. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kerizib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give the offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and, the Lord, and, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house, till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Tina, Tima to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Tima to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Tima. For he saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me, that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been there here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, 
And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Amen. Now, on Sunday nights, we're studying Genesis chapters 37 through uh, 50. Genesis is the book in the Bible about the beginning of the history of the people of God or the family of God. Let me just repeat that. It's the book in the Bible about the beginning of the history of the people of God or the family of God. And the section we are looking at, chapters 37 through 50, is about the generations of Jacob. Uh, That's the heading of this last section of the book. If you have a look at chapter 37, verse 2, you'll see it there. These are the generations of Jacob. Jacob, also called Israel. These are the two names for Jacob. Now, Joseph is the main character in Genesis 37 to 50, but this section of Genesis is not just about the life of Joseph. It is just as much about the continued history of the people of God. Joseph and his brothers, all 12 sons of Jacob or Israel, all 12 sons who would become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Last time in chapter 37, our first study, it's online if you missed it, it'll give you a fuller introduction. We read how Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. And the chapter ends, 37, with Joseph being sold by the slave traders to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh in Egypt. And in chapter 37, we learn three things. First, that Joseph is God's man, whom God will use to save his people, and before whom God's people will bow down to as their Lord. And God always, in salvation history, intended to raise up one man to be Savior and Lord. And so Joseph points us to the Lord Jesus who is the final Savior and Lord of God's people. Second, we learn if Joseph is God's man who points us to Jesus, the second thing is that Joseph's brothers are wicked men who reject God's chosen man, their brother Joseph, but in time will be brought to see that he is to be their Savior and he is to be their Lord. We are not Joseph in this narrative. We are not the one man God exalts as Savior and Lord. We stand, if we stand anywhere in this narrative, with Joseph's brothers. And it's true that many of us have been brought by God to the point where we recognize that in our past, we have rejected Jesus as Savior and Lord. But now by God's grace, We have been brought to believe in Him as Savior, 
and to bow before him as Lord. And that journey, which is the journey of coming to faith, whether it's over a short time or a longer time, and usually a longer time, is a journey that many of us have traveled. It is a journey that some of us are traveling. And I'm excited and praying very much that over these Sunday evenings, that journey for some of you will come to a glorious end where you will meet with Jesus and humbly accept Him as your Savior and as your Lord. The third thing we learned in chapter 37 is that God is sovereign over the wickedness of man, of humanity, to exalt His chosen man. Despite what his brothers did to Joseph, in the end they bowed down to him. What they did to Joseph far worse was done to Jesus. And yet God supremely set Jesus sovereignly over humanity as his king. Now that's Genesis 37, part one of the story. Joseph is God's man, the brothers are wicked men, God sovereignly over wickedness, exalts his chosen man. And we're all set for part two, what happens to Joseph in Egypt in Potiphar's house. One of my trusty podcasts, I was on podcast this morning, one of the trusty podcasts that I listened to missed out Genesis 38. I mean, you can understand why. But does it not give you confidence in the inspiration of Scripture, you wouldn't put it in, would you, if you were airbrushing this stuff? You wouldn't put that in. You certainly wouldn't put it in if this man, Judah, was going to be in the line that would lead to David to lead to Jesus. The events described in chapter 38 take place over a lengthy period of time and uh, parallel Joseph's life growing up in Egypt and all that happened to him. So we've got to read through chapter 8. It happens over a long period of time. And then next week we get back to the story of uh, Joseph chapter 39. And that takes place over the same period of time. So they're like parallel stories. And when you read chapter 38, it is pretty sordid stuff. You want to get on with Joseph, but we're stuck with Judah for a Sunday night. Judah is part of the special family of God, one of the children of Jacob, one of the children of Israel, one of the head of one of the tribes of Israel, and what a mess his life was. Now this, as I said, should give us confidence in the authenticity and reliability of these accounts. The Bible is not sentimental in any way. This is the family of God. These are the 12 sons of Israel who will head up the 12 tribes of Israel. If the Bible was made up, you would not have written this about this special family, this important family. This has all the authenticity of an historical, not a mythical account. Now, what I want to do tonight is walk you through the chapter first and explain it. It's important, I think, we do that. And then, uh, later on, to draw out four implications 
and you'll see these four implications written on the back of the service sheet. Let's leave them for a moment, though, and first make sure we understand what is happening. Now, if you open your Bibles up or prime your phones, I caught some of you out last week by having lots of cross-references and one or two of you just lost the plot with your phones. Follow along with me and let's get this story in our heads. We've got to get into the context of when these people lived and some of the laws that uh, existed. Verse 1, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Then Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her, that's his wife, and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name uh, Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. Now, these opening verses describe how Judah, one of the sons of Jacob or Israel, left home. And remember, it was Judah in chapter 37 who persuaded his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. Reuben was the dissenting voice and probably blamed Judah. Judah's plan to sell his brother into slavery was that so they would not have the guilt of Joseph's blood on their hands. But Judah must have been haunted by guilt. His idea, his greed for money, then the deceit, the cover-up with the blood on the coat, his distraught parents, and rather than deal with his guilt, he does what most people do and runs away. Now, it is symbolic and significant. Leaving Jacob and his brothers was turning away from the family of God and turning away from the center of God's promises and thus from God himself. A sure sign of someone turning away and running from God is turning away and running from the people of God. That's why I am concerned for you if you're not here for a period of time. And you might find me asking you, or one of the elders asking you, and if the explanation is credible, we'll just pretend we were asking about something else. But one of the signs of turning away from God is turning away from the people of God. When the Word of God challenges you or speaks into your heart, one of the ways to take away that conviction is just not to hear it. The phrase in verse 1 for Judah, he turned aside, is critical. He turns in a different direction. He has children with a Canaanite woman, which was a wrong decision against God's will. Judah and Shua, his wife, have three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. And then Judah, verse 6, took a wife for Er, his firstborn son, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. 
Again, that is very significant. Judah's firstborn son was a wicked man. We don't know more than that, but it's much worse than that. He is dead without children. The firstborn son was the one through whom the family line must continue. With heirs' death, Judah's family line is threatened. And this is God's family line that is threatened. Judah, along with his brothers as sons of Jacob, or Israel as Jacob was also called, had a special place in God's purposes. Judah is the head of one of the tribes of Israel. He must have descendants. This is a critical situation. Now, in the time in which Judah lived, there was a custom called leveret marriage. And leveret marriage provided for the continuation of a family line through a close male relative. And we need to see this as expected and acceptable practice. And this is what Judah asks his second son, Onan, to do. Verse 8, Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And what Onan did, verse 9, was, verse 10, wicked in the sight of the Lord. He did not want his late brother's wife to conceive and bear a son and become an heir to his brother's name, because he as the second son wanted his brother's inheritance for himself. This was wicked in God's sight, and God took his life. Verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now when Onan, Judah's second son, died, his only surviving son, Shelah, was too young, we suppose, to marry Tamar. So Judah asked Tamar, his widowed daughter-in-law, to return to her home and wait for Shelah to grow up. But there's a hint, at least in the verse, perhaps stronger, that Judah is not willing for Shelah to marry Tamar and have a child. Judah is afraid his last son will also die. Verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to the sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adumalite. And when Tamar was told, Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road uh, to Timnah. It's shocking stuff, this. What Tamar is doing is disguising herself and prostituting herself with one person in mind, her father-in-law, Judah. Why is she doing this? The second half of verse 14, for she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. It seems that Tamar, out of her concern for the preservation of Judah's line, more than Judah himself, her plan is to sleep with her father-in-law. Now, I don't know what we make of this. It might preserve the family life, but let's react to this as we should. It is shocking how she had the stomach for this. It's Sheila, Shela, some of my uh, uh, Bible commentaries say, 
if there's an Australian there, you know, this boy's name is Sheila, but I'm not going to go down that route. Shella, I have no idea of how you pronounce it. Is Shella who should be doing this for her? Her late husband's brother in Leverett marriage, not her, not her father-in-law. And she tricks Judah. When Judah, verse 15, saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her. That's the same verb as verse 1. He turned away from God, and as he turned to her, he turned another notch away from God. Why does Judah want, why does Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, one of the sons of Israel, one of the heads of the tribes of Israel, want to have sex with a prostitute? Because he thought she was a cult prostitute from a local pagan temple, and sleeping with these cult prostitutes was thought in pagan religion in Canaan to ensure the productivity of your livestock. There's another shock. This member of God's family is up to his neck in immorality and pagan religion. Reading on from the middle of verse 16, she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, what is she trying to do? She wants proof that it's Judah who has slept with her. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff. Uh, These are the things that bear his family crest. And so he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. And when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. She'd gone. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? They said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. Again, Judah is covering his tracks in case he is found out. And verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. I mean, just hear that. The man who sold his brother, the man who sold his brother lied to his father, abandoned God, and much more besides. Now he orders his daughter-in-law to be burned. His behavior is despicable. It's awful. It's shocking. And then Judah is exposed, verse 25, and she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, she gives him back the stuff. I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. Is that a vestige of him turning back? Who knows? And he did not know her again. A flicker of remorse. In verse 27, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread on the hand, saying, scarlet thread is to make sure you knew which one was the firstborn. This one came out first, but as as he drew his hand back, behold, his brother came out, and he said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was called Zerah. What a chapter for a Sunday night. Amen. Let's pronounce the blessing. At the end of this terrible, terrible, terrible mess, 
Judah's line will continue through Perez, Tamar's firstborn boy. Now, that's what happened. Let me draw out now the implications. Number one, what a mess when, as God's people, we turn away from Him. What a mess in our lives when we turn away from God, and what a mess in other people's lives as a result of us turning away from God. But here's the real deal question. Are we really like Judah? Preachers kind of pretend to draw dotted lines. No, we are not in many respects. This is extreme. We have not sold our brother into slavery. We haven't turned so clearly away from God as he did. Our lives are not so enmeshed with compromise and contradictions as his was. Our decisions are not so foolish nor so immoral as his were. And yet, is that really true? Do we not in our lives as Christians reject the Lord Jesus? And are our lives not often, at least in terms of the day-to-day way we live, turned away from God? Are we so sure we are unlike Him? Are we not in truth enmeshed with compromise and contradiction? In the secret of our homes and our hearts, where only God sees, do we do in our minds what He did with His daughter-in-law in the flesh? Are our decisions as Christians wise? You know, my soul is always encouraged as a minister when someone moves on from Chalmers, but like uh, Andy and Moira, and the decision they make is born out of spiritual reasons. I'm going to move to this city. And the first thing I'm going to ask, is it the right thing to do by God? Rather than any number of other reasons. Is it a wise decision? Is it a moral decision? A good gauge of where we are with God is where we are with the people of God. Are we isolated from the people of God? You're maybe not, but someone listening online is. Are you isolated from the people of God, not experiencing true fellowship, living on the edge of a church, feeling out of it, isolated, out of sorts? It may well be because you have turned away from God. Now, this is never, ever meant to discourage us. The Bible's exposure of who we are again and again is meant to lead us back, to lead us to rely on Jesus Christ, to bow before Him as Savior and Lord, which is why we sing this song so often, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's a song I was listening to this week. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is no one like you. All of my days, I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love. And then listen to this verse. And I think we we mismatch these songs to the circumstances when we sing them. 
my comfort, my shelter, tower of refuge and strength, let every breath, all that I am, never cease to worship you in a, in a kind of uh, symphony of noise. When do we sing these words? When we have turned from God and he has found us, my comfort, my shelter, tower of refuge and strength, let every breath, all that I am, never cease to worship you. We sing these words with deep understanding. Yes, when we are flying on eagles' wings, but we sing, my comfort, my shelter, as a messed up sinner. Then the words are precious. What a mess when, as God's people, we turn away from Him. If we come to repent, there is always a way back. So, where are you in this? Are you at a crossroads, tempted to turn away from God? Some decision you know is wrong, something you need to face up to, but you won't, so you'll turn away. Don't do it. Don't turn away from God. You will end up in a mess. Or are you already some distance away from God? You might be here in body, but not in spirit. You're living increasingly enmeshed with compromise and contradiction. The gap between Sunday in public with your fellow believers and Sunday night at home with your thoughts or your remote, or your computer, or whatever else it is, is growing wider. Stop. Turn back to God. And what if you've long gone? If, like Judah, there's hardly a flicker of godliness or recognition left, well, take heart that there is a flicker left, and there will always be a flicker left. Now is the moment to stop and turn back, come back to God, come back to Jesus as your Lord. And as you meet God, you will meet open arms welcoming you back, a Savior and a Lord in Jesus, who, when you bow down before Him again, will in His first gesture lift up your head, take you by the hand, and ask you to rise and embrace you in his loving arms. And that is not sentiment. That is how it is with Jesus. Here's an old hymn from an older man. I'm getting old, so I like these hymns. Oh, let me feel thee near me. The world is ever near. I see the sights that dazzle, the tempting sounds I hear. My foes are ever near me, around me and within. That's written by a real Christian, isn't it? But Jesus, draw thou nearer and shield my soul from sin. Let me hear thee speaking in accents clear and still above the storms of passion, the murmurs of self-will. Speak to reassure me to hasten or control. Speak and make me listen, thou guardian of my soul. Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. 
Oh, give me grace to follow my master and my friend. That song, that hymn is written by someone whose heart is tugging him to turn. Keep me, Jesus. That's how to live the Christian life. Before we turn away from God, sing that hymn. When we have turned away from God, sing that hymn and pray that hymn. And when we are so far from God that our life is a mess and all there is is a flicker, then pray that hymn. Second implication, God's astounding grace in bringing us back. God's grace in bringing us back is astounding in that He will have us back. God's grace in bringing us back is astounding in that He will have us back again and again and again. God's grace in bringing us back is at work before we realize it and before we turn back to Him. His grace in bringing us back underpins, underlies, precedes any desire or decision we make to come back. There is nothing commendable about Judah that God should want him back. He had rejected God's chosen ruler. He had lied to his father. He had covered the tracks of his sin again and again. He had disobeyed God. He had acted immorally, selfishly, unjustly, and harshly, and yet God brings him back. Later on in the narrative, I think it's chapter 44, there is a powerful and moving moment when Judah pleads with Joseph for the life of little Benjamin. And that's the moment Joseph breaks down and reveals to his brothers that he is Joseph. Why did God bring Judah back? Was it to prove a point that God gets his way in the end? Was it to make us think, I'm not going to mess with God and walk away? Was it to make us marvel at the tenacity of God, that his purposes, his promise, his promised line of blessing would not be broken? Yes, all of these things perhaps, but just as much, if not more. Why did God bring Judah back because God loved him. And he loves us in spite of us. In Judah, we get a very clear picture of the astounding grace of God in the life of one of his people. Over a long time, through years of him living far from God, this is God's astounding grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. That's being saved. I'm into writing verses of other people's hymns. Well, I've done it twice. There were no comments after the last one. I think some of the hymns we sing about salvation, well, we sing them as Christians. They're just as powerful to us. Here's a verse that we might add to you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that keeps a wretch like me. I turn from God, but now I'm found, brought back to bow my knee. That's Judah. That's you. That's me. At some stage in our life. 
how wonderful it would be if it's you tonight. The amazing grace of God has brought you back. Third, God's astounding grace in blessing us and blessing others through us. Judah was blessed by Joseph, the brother he had rejected. Judah was blessed by his father, the one he had deceived. Judah was blessed in having sons, Perez, the firstborn, and Zerah. Now turn in your Bibles, two quick references to the end of the book of Ruth, page 224 in the church Bibles. Two two four. Ruth, the book, is itself an account of how a family turned away from God and were brought back, brought back not simply to live out their days, brought back to be blessed and to bless others through them. At the end of the book of Ruth, Ruth marries Boaz as her kinsman, Redeemer, and they have a son, Obed, who is the great-grandfather of King David, from whose line the Lord Jesus comes. Let's read from chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, the last few verses have the dynamite in them. Verse 18, These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon, Boaz, Boaz, Obed, Obed, Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Perez, the name at the head of the list, does his name ring a bell? Genesis 38, Perez is Judah's firstborn son, born to Tamar. King David comes from the line of the tribe of Judah. And the Lord Jesus is the son of David. Let me read to you from Matthew's genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Abraham, the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah, is the one he's picked. And his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez. And Zerah by Tamar. And so on down to David and so on down to Jesus. Judah and Tamar included in the genealogy that leads to Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's astounding grace in blessing us and blessing others through us. Why did God do this with Judah? Was it to prove the point that God gets his way? Was it to make us marvel at the tenacity of God that his purposes, his promised line of blessing would be broken. You know, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God paints a picture that is extraordinary in the way God works things out. But never let the sovereignty of God rob us of the fact that he does this because he loves Judah with all his heart.
And because God wanted Genesis 38 in our Bibles, and He wanted their names in the genealogy to convince you that in spite of the mess, He wants to bless you and use you and make you a blessing. And what a wonderful encouragement it is to me at least. And just as well. For we are a real mess much of the time. And so we end at the place where this closing section of Genesis will bring us again and again, chapter by chapter, chapter by chapter, humbled before Jesus Christ our Lord. Genesis 37 to 50 will take a church family, an ordinary church family like us, and bring us to our knees. Now, that sounds wrong. It's not that, it's not that God brings us to our knees to leave us there. He brings us to our knees that we lift up our eyes, and He takes our hands, and He raises us up, and He embraces us. It's a wonderful section of Scripture to let God's grace flood into our corporate heart. Humble before Jesus Christ our Lord when we realize we often turn from Him and make such a mess. Humbled by God's astounding grace in bringing us back. Humbled by God's astounding grace in blessing us and blessing others through us. Humbled before Jesus Christ, my Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that this chapter will not leave us cold, but encourage us and inspire us that as your people, even when we are fickle and wander far from you, you want to bring us back to bless us, to bless others through us, and as we are humble before Jesus Christ as our Lord, the Lord Jesus reaches down to us and says, stand, come and stand before me, and embraces us. And as it were, puts his arm around our shoulders and says, come on, let's go. Let's live now close together as you serve me, as you love me because I have never stopped loving you. What a sweet Savior Jesus is. What a wonderful thing grace is. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in our ears now and in our hearts as we sing, for Jesus' sake. Amen.